if there was ever a time where culture uh, was offended at opinions, it is this time, I think perhaps in our day. Uh, our culture sometimes, it seems, seems to believe that the only respectable and virtuous belief is no belief at all. To have a strong conviction at times is viewed as arrogant, is viewed as stubborn. Well, I love uh, looking at examples in church history. I'm not a church history buff uh, by any stretch of the means, but I do love looking at examples in the past of Christians, uh, brothers and sisters, who have stood firm in their belief against opposition. Uh, our culture today seems to uh, see things like deconstruction as a virtue and confidence in conviction uh, as a vice. But when it comes to belief in the Bible and faith in Christ, Christians are called to stand firm in their belief. Uh, there, there are many great examples of this throughout church history, uh, but one of my favorites is none other than Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, who famously uh, had his efforts begin the Protestant Reformation is what it became. He nailed the 95 Thesis to uh, the door, and without his permission, someone translated it and then printed it and sent it all over the country, and his words uh, lit up the country like fire. And uh, over the course of the next four years, Luther, in his teaching and rediscovering of the gospel, discovered that righteousness was acquired not by his own works, but, in fact, by faith in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness given to us. Four years after he nailed the 95 Thesis to the doors, he was tried by what was called the Diet of Worms uh, in 1521. And on April 17th of that day, they asked him, will you recant all of the teachings that you have given in your books and your lectures? And his response was, let me think about it. And so he spent the next 24 hours discussing it, knowing that if he recanted, all would be well, but if he did not, he would be condemned as a heretic and be sentenced to be burned at the stake. The following day, after thinking of it, he had this to say. He said, Since your most serene majesty and your highnessness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give you one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. It's an amazing example of standing firm on the gospel in church history. Uh, well, this is the very thing that Paul, the apostle, is encouraging his audience, 
Christians in Galatia to do in our sermon text this morning. Uh, So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. That's the passage we're going to be studying this morning. Galatians 5, 1 through 15. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs, you can find our passage beginning on page 974. 974. Uh, Chapter 5 of the book of Galatians marks a turning point in the letter. Uh, Up to this point, Paul has argued passionately to the Galatians to maintain their faith as professed in Christ. Uh, They were being tempted to submit to Mosaic law by the Jews, and so Paul has unleashed a full artillery of arguments against their teaching. And his warnings, especially at the end of chapter 4, have been grounded in the conviction that the gospel, the saving message of Christ, is freeing, is liberating, and that other beliefs of, and self-reliance is enslaving, is slavery. Uh, that conviction, I think, is true across the board when you examine the claims of the Bible and Christianity as a whole. Uh, when you break down other worldviews, you'll find that everybody trusts in something. Everybody relies on something, whether it's uh, your own good deeds, uh, whether it is a specific kind of religion, uh, the hope of salvation, whether it's in a certain kind of rituals or sacrifices or ceremonies, whatever it may be. But up to this point, uh, Paul has realized that the Galatian Christians are under threat of abandoning their faith in Christ that has freed them from their previous slavery to pagan idols. Paul not only exhorts them to continue to live like free people, but explains a little bit about what that freedom should look like in their lives as well. Uh, The main main idea of this passage, I think, is simple uh, and applies to us directly. The main idea is stand firm in the gospel of grace and love others. Stand firm in the gospel of grace and love others. I think the easiest way to understand this passage uh, is just to ask two follow-up questions to that main idea. First question, why should we stand firm in freedom rather than submit to slavery? And second, how do we stand firm in freedom? Why should we stand firm and how do we stand firm? And those are going to be my two points uh, going through this passage Today. And for each question, I have four answers provided in the text. It's up for you to decide if you think the sermon has two points, eight points, or ten points. But two questions and four answers for each. With those things in mind, let's read our text together now. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. Paul says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
that this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, Verse 1 in this passage is very much a transition verse from the previous passage in which Paul used a historical example, the example of Sarah and Hagar, to illustrate how their faith has made them free people, children of promise rather than children of slavery. And he simply means slavery to sin. Uh, slavery to the dominion of this world, slavery to the consequences of sin, uh, the wrath of God that's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, The Gentiles coming from a background of pagan religions would have seen their old ways as enslaving. They've already realized that. Uh, But because their belief did not set them free, the more they indulged in their old way of living... It only tightened the chains. But Paul now says that to submit to Judaism, to submit to the law, would be to return to slavery, since Christ has come fulfilling the law. Uh, Nobody wants to be a slave. Uh, Nobody would, in their right mind, trade freedom for slavery. As a general rule, the gospel frees us from our sin. And it does so in a few ways. It's a message of forgiveness, which removes the guilt and shame of our sin, what was once a great burden preventing us from God, has been removed and replaced with clothes of righteousness. We are freed from the grip of sin, which would have dragged us into hell. But it also frees us from the burden of our own works, the burden of always striving to be good enough for God, trying to outweigh our guilt by doing things we think are good. There's freedom in the gospel because the gospel is given to us. It's good news delivered to us. It is not earned by us. Uh, We don't deserve to be saved. There's nothing we could do to coerce God into saving us. He did it for His own glory out of His love for us. The Galatians rejoiced in this freedom from sin initially, uh, but are now being tempted as we all are from time to time, to depart from believing in Christ alone for salvation. Uh, Paul exhorts them clearly to stand firm, therefore, and resist the yoke of slavery. Uh, So first, first question, why should we stand in freedom rather than avoid slavery? Uh, I see at least four reasons here. The first reason, sub-point A, because slavery is of no advantage to us. Slavery is of no advantage. Uh, I think if you were to ask people if slavery was an advantage, uh, it would not be a hard question to answer, of course. It's not a good thing to lose freedom. Uh, But Paul is addressing the spiritual matter of slavery, uh, meaning slavery has no advantage when it comes to salvation. 
Uh, works of the law have no advantage when it comes to salvation, uh, since he's applying this to circumcision. Paul even goes so far as to say that Christ will be uh, of no advantage for those who submit to the law. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, Paul is saying if you think you need to perform some kind of works in order to be saved, in this case circumcision, then what was Christ's death for? What grace is there in Christ? If his salvation comes at the cost of doing more works ourselves, uh, Paul's providing a clear ultimatum here. You're either trusting in Christ or you are trusting in something else. And to trust in something else other than Christ is to doubt his grace towards you. It is to doubt the message of the gospel which promises salvation freely to all who believe. Uh, The Galatians were tempted to believe in Jesus plus their adherence or obedience to the law. But to add to the gospel is really to subtract from it. To add to Jesus takes away from him, calls his work insufficient. Because if something else is necessary, like circumcision, then in some way Christ's death is not enough to secure salvation. When you add to the gospel, you're subtracting from it. The other point that Paul makes clear in verse 3 is a logical one. And the logic goes like this. If you're required to submit to one part of the law, in this case circumcision, then you must be required to submit to the whole law. If you must follow one command, then you must follow all of them. Meaning you either submit to the law, the yoke of the law, or you don't. Uh, Humans will be judged by the law. Uh, We know that. That's all over Scripture. So to say that you have to obey the whole law is an impossible task. James 2.10 says it in in a reverse kind of way. It says that anyone who fails the law at one point is guilty of the whole thing. You can't just pick and choose which portions of the law you want to obey or which ones you think are important. You either take the law as a whole or not at all. Paul's warning here to them would help ward away any kind of naivety in thinking that submitting to one category is not so uh, bad or does good. Paul's saying this is no small deal. If you're relying on circumcision, you're relying on your own works. You're trusting in the law to make you righteous before God rather than in Christ alone. Um, Circumcision, which we can substitute for our own works, are of no advantage to us on the day of judgment uh, when it comes to our salvation. Uh, That's what Paul's saying in verse 6 when he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Uh, It's helpful to ask the question, why would Paul need to say this? Why did Paul think this need to be told to the Galatians? Why would Paul need to say that whether you are circumcised or not does not count for anything? The answer can only be because they believed, or at least were tempted to believe, that circumcision did count for something. Paul clears that up. It's not as though uh, circumcision itself is uh, a bad thing. Um, So, you know, it's a standard practice in hospitals in America. But the difference is most people don't see it as an indicator that you're included in the people of God. Uh, Most people are not trusting in it today as 
something that secures their salvation. It's not bad in and of itself, but to trust in it as instrumental to your salvation is of no value. Uh, Instead, he says, it is only faith working through love. Uh, Allow me just to provide maybe some modern-day substitutes uh, that you might be tempted to rely on today, uh, whether you're trying to make the decision to follow Christ for the first time, or even as a believer, uh, tempted to believe or trust in your own works instead of Christ. These things, too, will be of no advantage to you on the day of judgment when it comes to your salvation. Whether or not you had perfect attendance in church. Whether or not you completed your New Year's Bible reading plan. Whether or not you said the sinner's prayer as a child in your life. Whether or not you had a successful career. Whether or not you understood all of the mysteries in the Bible whether or not you had the best apologetics arguments, whether or not you were recognized for your external goodness by others, whether or not you committed this sin or that sin. What will matter on the day of judgment is do you believe that you are saved purely on the basis of Christ's grace alone, or are you keeping track of your own merit? Dear friends, if we are relying on our own merit, our own works, our own track record, we will have nothing to say before a holy God. All mouths will be stopped before Him because He knows all, and we have all sinned against His holiness. All these things will be only a disadvantage to you if you prioritize them over the right understanding of the cross. You'll notice that many of the things I mentioned are not bad things in and of themselves. But if we depend on them, rather than depend on Christ, if we see them as a mechanism to gain God's favor, then they will be of no advantage to us. Stand in freedom because your works will be of no advantage on the last day. There's no good and bad people that God will judge between. There are only bad people. We're all fallen and sinful creatures, but there are some fallen and sinful creatures that will go to heaven on the basis not of their own works, but on their faith in Christ's works, in His saving acts. First John 5.12 says, Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Now that leads me to the second sub-point of why we should stand firm in freedom and avoid slavery. Subpoint B, because slavery severs us from Christ. Slavery severs us from Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. To return to slavery or trust in your own works is to be severed, cut off from Christ. There's a great deal of irony in this whole situation uh, here and in this example because circumcision was given as a sign to the people uh, as an indicator separating them from the rest of the nations. Uh, The removing of the foreskin was to symbolize how they would be cut off from God if they broke the covenant with Him. Yet here, 
Paul says that if the Gentiles submit to circumcision, they will not be included but severed from Christ. So the very sign that once served the purpose of indicating inclusion in the kingdom of God would for the Gentiles be an indication that they had fallen away from grace were they to go through with it. But we should be very careful to examine ourselves in light of this danger. If we're relying on ourselves for justification, uh, we must do everything we can to confirm that this warning is not true of us. Uh, So here are a few questions that you can ask to help identify whether or not you are tempted to rely or trust in your own actions. One, do you see God's love towards you as a result of your actions? Do you see God's love towards you as a result of your actions? Do you approach spiritual disciplines because you think the grace will run out if you don't? Do you approach spiritual disciplines because you think God's grace will run out if you don't? Or do you presume time in God's Word and in prayer because you know it is one of the ways that God graciously gives Himself to you? Do you pursue time in God's Word and prayer because you know it's one of the ways that God graciously gives Himself to you? Are you seeking to grow because of your own ambition and pride or because you love God and you want to be more like Him and you want to experience Him more in your life? You'll notice that these questions, again, are not necessarily things that are bad in of themselves, but they have potential to become chains of self-reliance. Ultimately, self-reliance will enslave to the point of striving for your own righteousness, which you will never be able to achieve. Uh, So, friend, if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a a Christian, uh, the, the Bible says very clearly that whoever sins is a slave to sin. So we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and by nature uh, deserve God's wrath. But God in His love has set a way that we can be free. He sent His only Son to obey the law perfectly and in His righteousness provides sufficient payment on our behalf so that in His sacrifice on the cross we can be forgiven. Our debt can be cleared. So we stand before God trusting on Christ's work. He sees not our sin, but Christ's righteousness clothing us. Oh, friend, if you have never made that step to rely on Christ instead of on yourself, let me just encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to give you the faith to do so. Pray and ask that the Lord would change your heart. Call out to Him and ask for help. And resolve in your own personal heart Uh, to never stop pursuing reliance and trust on Jesus. If you have more questions about what that might look like, uh, I would love to talk to you more afterwards at the door. Uh, We as Christians should never graduate from this news. We should never graduate from the gospel. Uh, I met someone once on the street, uh, and I was wearing a, a shirt that said something about the church, Uh, It was clearly a Christian shirt, and he sparked a conversation with me. And throughout the course of the conversation, I was able to share the gospel with him. God is creator and judge, a holy God, demands perfection. We have uh, erred and sinned and are guilty of judgment, but Christ came to bore the wrath that we deserve. If we trust in him, we could be saved throughout eternity and not perish. And he said, yeah, yeah, I've heard all that before. He said, I used to go to church. I was like, oh, why did you stop going? 
And he said, oh, it was the same thing every week. So I left. I learned it all. I have no idea what his church was like uh, exactly. But on reflecting on that conversation later, I thought to myself, it's a glorious thing that a church never stops preaching the gospel. The reason is because we are a people that will always need to hear the gospel. We will always need to be reminded of our sin and our need for Christ's righteousness. We ourselves will never be righteous enough in our own right, and we need the reminder of God's grace to recalibrate our hearts to humility before God. We need to be reminded of our freedom so that we live like those who are free and not those who are in slavery. The church should be a place where non-Christians get tired of hearing the same story. Because for those who believe in Jesus, who feel the conviction of the Spirit, the gospel is at the center of everything we do. It's the reason we gather to celebrate the Lord's resurrection each week. It's the source of our salvation and our ongoing sanctification. Brothers and sisters, don't get tired of hearing the gospel. It is your freedom. And nothing is worth gaining in this world if it means losing Christ. No status, no relationship, no career, no amount of wealth, no material item, no amount of security. Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot, new, cannot lose. Well, the world will try to convince you of the exact opposite, that it's foolish to give up everything in the world for Jesus, that you'll miss out on so much good otherwise. I agree with Luther, who said that whatever the world counts as good and holy without Christ is nothing but sin and error. Third sub-point, why we should stand in freedom Rather than submit to slavery, point C is because the gospel of freedom is truth. Because the gospel of freedom is truth. This is clearly seen in verses 7 and 8, where Paul asks, who has hindered them from obeying the truth? He says, whoever it is, it's not God. This temptation to a false freedom is not from the Lord. And the Bible is not shy about this. We worship a God of truth. He is true in everything He has said to us and revealed to us. Christianity is a religion built on facts and historical events. It stands on the fact that Jesus got up from the grave three days after being crucified and laid in a tomb. And a crucial part of our ability to stand in the gospel is believing the truth when our hearts are not engaged. Believing in the truth when our hearts are not engaged. Every Christian, I think, experiences times where we ascend to mountaintops and we go down into deep valleys. And it's in those deep valleys that we often struggle to believe the gospel of grace because we don't feel it in our hearts. We feel as though we've lost our appetite for spiritual things. We feel as though God is not near to us as He once was. Every Christian will experience a lack of spiritual fervor at times. And the result is often either a distancing oneself from fellowship with God and the saints, or it is going through seasons of great doubt. Satan, who is more clever than you realize, uses these times to hold your sin against you and to whisper lies into your ears. 
He uses your emotions or lack thereof to challenge the truth of the gospel. Uh, To look elsewhere for salvation and comfort and security. Uh, We must recognize during times like these that our standing before God is not affected by the weakness of our own hearts. Our salvation is not called into question because it was not purchased by us. Jesus purchased our souls on the credit of his own righteousness, of which there is a never-ending supply. If salvation were purchased by our own efforts, Satan would surely waste no time in coming to repossess our souls. Brothers and sisters, recognize when your faith is weak and your emotions frail, the sufficiency of Christ shines all the more brightly. Those who cling to Him and believe in Him will never be separated from the love of God, no matter what our feelings tell us. Luther, again, was great on this point. Luther himself, who struggled at great lengths with his own assurance at times, had this to say. The comfort, that it, the comfort is that in serious conflicts, when the feeling of sin, heaviness, of spirit, despair, and so on are very strong, entering deeply into the heart and attacking it, we must not follow our own feeling. If we do, we shall say, I feel the horrible terrors of the law and the tyranny of sin, not only rebelling against me, but also subduing me and leading me captive. I feel no comfort or righteousness at all. Therefore, I am a sinner, and I am not righteous. And if I am a sinner, I am guilty of everlasting death. But you must wrestle against this feeling and say, although I feel myself utterly overwhelmed and swallowed up by sin, and my heart tells me that God is offended and angry with me, in fact, that is not true, even though my own sense and feeling thinks it true. The word of God, which in these terrors I ought to follow rather than my own sense, teaches something quite differently, namely that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Also, he will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Moreover, Paul shows here that those who are justified in spirit by faith do not yet feel the hope of righteousness, but still wait for it. Luther continues, So when the law accuses and sin frightens you, and you feel nothing but the wrath and judgment of God, do not despair. Take the armor of God, the shield of faith, the helmet of hope, the sword of the Spirit, and see how good and valiant a warrior you are. Lay hold of Christ by faith. He is the Lord of the law and sin and of all other things that accompany them. Believing in Him, you are justified. It is not your reason and feelings that tell you this when you are tempted, but the Word of God. Moreover, in the midst of these conflicts and terrors, which often return to try you, wait patiently through hope for righteousness, which you have now by faith, even though it is only an imperfect beginning so far. Wait for it to be revealed and made perfect in the kingdom of heaven. You must not feel, but believe that you have righteousness. Unless you believe that you are righteous, you do great injury to Christ. The Galatians have felt pressure from the Jews. Perhaps fear of man, perhaps desire for prestige, 
But in any case, we must stand firm in the gospel because it is truth. It is the only thing that saves. Fourth answer, fourth subpoint D, why we should stand firm in freedom because slavery spreads like poison. Because slavery spreads like poison. Paul says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, he's used this phrase a number of times in different letters to talk about the way that sin corrupts us. Uh, leaven is like yeast that causes the dough, uh, all of the dough, to rise when making bread. Uh, just as a little leaven causes the whole thing to rise, so a little sin, a little false teaching, can distort the gospel entirely. It can lead to slavery. Paul uses this image to simply say, do not even entertain the idea of submitting to the law. It is to submit to slavery, to trust in your own works, to be severed from Christ. Well, that's point one, why we should stand in freedom. The second question, how do we stand in freedom? How do we stand in freedom? What does it look like realistically? Uh, These will be closer to application of the text. Four answers I see in this passage. The first is through the Spirit by faith. Paul mentions that in verse 5. How can we stand firm in the gospel if we are not to rely on our works? The answer is we rely on the works of another. The realization that we cannot make ourselves free should cause us to see that we cannot keep ourselves free by our own efforts either. It is not by our willpower or our effort, but the work of the Holy Spirit within us that causes us to have faith. Just as it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us in the first place, shows us our need of saving, it is the Spirit that enables us to exercise our faith in Christ. So how do we remain free? You continue believing and depending on Christ, just as you did on the day of your conversion. Believe in Jesus. Rely on Him fully and nothing else, and you will stand firm in the gospel. Practically, uh, parents, I think, especially need to remember this in your parenting. Uh, Remember this truth in your own life, and it will help you trust the Lord as you seek to raise kids. Uh, We do everything we can to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, But we have to remember that only the Holy Spirit can convict and can bestow the gift of faith. We should want to give them every possible tool that the Spirit can use in the process. But ultimately, our actions cannot soften their heart towards God. It is something the Lord must do, so we have to believe and trust in Him. Pray constantly for your kids. A second answer Trust not in your own righteousness. Trust not in your own righteousness. Anticipate instead righteousness eagerly. This comes again from verse 5 where Paul says that we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Which means we have received the promise of righteousness. We ourselves are not actually righteous. We are still living in a fallen world and in fallen bodies that are susceptible to sin. We, of course, aspire to live a godly life in response to our salvation out of love for Jesus, but we won't achieve perfection in this life, which means Christians will face the struggle with sin their entire lives. The Spirit will 
wrestle with the flesh. So we will be tempted to trust in our own works or become proud or become insecure in our standing. Standing firm for freedom, therefore, means a recognition of our own sinfulness, a reoccurring recognition, an understanding of our need for righteousness as well as the belief that Christ has promised that we will have His righteousness in eternity. Those who believe in Christ are reckoned, declared righteous before God. It has been secured for us. The verdict is out. But we are waiting for the day that it is revealed to us finally. And to believe in the gospel is to believe that we will be made righteous fully on the last day as a result of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. He distributes His righteousness to those who believe in Him rather than themselves. Third answer to how we stand firm in freedom. Resist the persuasion of the world. Verse 8. Resist the persuasion of the world. Paul mentions a particular person that is persuading the Galatians. Uh, He doesn't even appear to know his name, but he doesn't need to. He tells them to not be troubled over such a one. As Christians, we know very well that the world is a persuasive place. The world pulls the Christian in every direction in an attempt to rip apart faith. So, friend, you need to be aware that some kind of opposition will likely occur in your life at one point or another because you believe in Jesus. Sometimes that persuasion to abandon the gospel comes through difficulty in life. Sometimes it comes through trials as the world tries to woo you to indulge in mind-numbing pleasure. Other times persuasion comes in the form of persecution for your faith, ridicule for your belief. This kind of challenge to faith takes many forms. And the Christian must not be so naive as to think their walk with Christ will go unchallenged. But Jesus made a beautiful promise to those who believe in the gospel, that he will build his church on the gospel, and that against that profession, the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail, but that doesn't mean they won't come knocking at your door. Look at passages like this one in Galatians and take heart. Paul, too, had great confidence in the Galatian Christians. Uh, He said that they had been running well before being tempted. He said that he was confident they would come to their senses, and that's because he knew the faith of the Galatians was sincere. They had witnessed the Holy Spirit in their lives and therefore knows they will continue to trust in Christ alone. For those who have been saved by grace truly cannot depart from it. The Holy Spirit will never leave His home in our hearts. Paul provides this warning because he knows the Lord uses warnings to preserve the faith of His saints. We can be confident that as long as we are trusting in Christ, we will never lose our freedom of salvation. And the Holy Spirit will never sleep in our hearts. If at times we struggle to feel His presence, we worship the God of truth who accomplishes everything else He sets out to do. And one of the things He has promised to do is to complete the work begun in us. So friends, stand, standing firm in freedom looks like resisting the persuasions of the world in all the various forms they take. Lastly, 
an undeniable sign of freedom in Christ, what it looks like is love and service for others. Look again at verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's a little confusing, this instruction, isn't it, that Paul is basically exhorting them to uh, not obey the law, and then he turns around to say that they should love their neighbor, a command that is clearly rooted in the law, Leviticus 19. But Paul's explaining that they can carry out the spirit of the law by loving their neighbor, that the intent of the law, which was fulfilled in Christ, is still accomplished in Christ's followers when they love others well. What does Paul mean when he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? I think he's addressing the objection that if submission to the Mosaic law is no longer necessary, then we should just live however we want. I think he's addressing antinomialism, uh, anti-law, basically. If, if, if we're free from the law, then anything goes. But Paul says, obviously, that's a mistake. Being free from the law should not result in carnality. It should, lead, uh, it should not lead to more sin, but less. Uh, don't use your freedom of the law as a license to tear others down. Instead, fully fulfill the spirit of the law by loving others. Uh, show that the law is no longer needed because as a believer of Jesus, you have compassion on all. Everyone is your neighbor. Uh, standing firm in the gospel will look like looking to Christ confidently for salvation and the fruit of that belief will be seen in our love for each other. Now, our love for each other is not a kind of work that guarantees our salvation. It is the fruit of our salvation that has already been worked through Christ's deeds. Jesus said this exact same thing to his disciples. He gave them a new command to love one another and even said that others would know they were his disciples by the way they love each other. So how is love for neighbor at work in your life? Uh, how is love for neighbor at work in your life in this local church in particular? It's not seen as the reason for justification, but rather is something we have been called to as believers of Jesus. The fruit of it, not the means of it, the evidence of our faith but not the, not the thing that we have faith in. The gospel brings freedom. Therefore, stand, for, stand firm in your freedom and do not submit to slavery again. For Christ has set us free so that we would be free indeed. Our brothers and sisters, remember the gospel and love others because of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that in Christ you have set us free. Free from slavery, free from death. Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its victory. Christ has turned death into only a gardener. We know that when we pass from this life 
trusting in Christ, we will be raised with Christ when he appears to eternal glory. Now help us to hold fast to our confession and help us by your spirit, we pray, uh, to show the evidence and fruit of this confession in our lives as we seek to love others as Christ has loved us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.